It is a joy and a privilege to introduce my friend, um, my brother, um, someone who in a very direct way, but yet in an indirect manner, has influenced my life um, and shown a pattern for what it means to be a disciple and a disciple maker. Very quickly, I heard of Herb Hodges through a former pastor of mine who was impacted directly by Herb's ministry. And then in the in 2001, we went to a Disciple Makers Retreat in Camp Sumatonga, Alabama, which is a fine mouthful, Camp Sumatonga, Alabama. And I want to tell you what happened to me in, in that place. And again, this, is, this will be brief. They asked the question that night. We're in a room bigger than this. Not, not a whole lot bigger, but bigger. Well, I don't know. It was pretty good size. And... And everybody is standing there, and and they're introducing Herb. These are Herb's direct Timothys, these guys that have been directly influenced by him. And a guy asked the question, he said, if you have been personally discipled by Herb Hodges, stand up. And a good number of people stood up. How many people are in that room, you think? I don't know. About 250 people in this room. Men. This was us as all men at the time. A good number of people stood up, and they said, now stay standing. If you've been discipled by somebody that's standing up, stand up as well. A bigger number stood up. About three-quarters of the room was standing at that time. And then they said, if you've been discipled by anybody standing up, stand up. By that time, everybody in the room was standing. In three generations, at least 250 men had been directly impacted by one man's faith. And this is not to lift up her podges. Ever, never, ever. It's to uplift the biblical model for discipling people. To fulfill the great commission of Jesus Christ, which is, as you are going, turn men into disciples. Herb Hodges has modeled that for me, indirectly and directly. Um, he is a man, I heard the other day on the radio, I think it was, uh, don't matter who it is, Dennis Rainey. So there's five stages in a man's life, five steps. There's infancy, childhood, manhood, mentorship, and sage. And five steps that a man, if he is properly trained and properly progressing, those are the five steps that he will go through. I wholeheartedly commend to you a man who I believe is a sage, someone who is impacting and please don't hear any exaggeration in this statement. Thousands of people all throughout the world through his faithfulness to the ministry of the Word of God of turning people into disciples. I thank God for Herb Hodges, and I pray and commend him to you this morning that you would not only have open ears and open hearts, take care how you listen. He, he would ask you to be a Pennsylvanian this morning and take good notes, okay? No notes means no intentions. If you don't take notes, you don't have any intention of sharing it with anybody else. You can't. You say, well, we're recording it. We are recording it. But repetition, repetition, repetition is the key to mastering anything. So Herb's going to come. He's going to speak. And I know that you'll be blessed and encouraged. Take as good a notes as you can and be ready to share what he shares with us today. And Herb, let me thank you for coming and uh doing everything you've done this weekend. We appreciate you and we thank God for you. So come on, bro.
Well, I can hardly wait to hear myself speak after that introduction. I, I wasn't sure he was talking about me most of the way there all the time. He thought he was, but I know me. Um, I heard about a guy who was trying to put his contact lens in, one eye, just one, and he didn't have any lubricating fluid, so he thought he would lick it and moisten it to put it in his eye, and he swallowed his contact lens. He said, immediately I had better insight. And when it passed, I had better hindsight. Um, <laughs> now, please don't get that in the middle of the service if you didn't get it first time around. <laughs> it would be completely distracting then. But look, every time you meet, uh, this is an unusual place. I, when I walk in, I feel I'm scalped deep in the Holy Spirit. I was pastor of a church like that. I mean, it was ambush. That's what a lady called it. 84-year-old woman came. She skipped around the country to spend three months at a time with her family members who lived in different parts of the country. She came to Memphis where I was pastor, and I did not know any of this arrangement. She stayed three years. I didn't know about that six-month arrangement. She came in to talk to me the day before she left to go to the next stopping place. And she said, this is the most unusual church I've ever been in in my life. She said, I've obviously at my age been in a lot of churches. But she said, I have never walked into this church building even when the building was empty of anybody human except me without being strongly visited by the Holy Spirit. See, I believe there's a reason for that. According to the book, the whole economy of God is atmospheric. Day of Pentecost, he, he breathed a blowing, rushing, mighty wind, breath, spirit into the place, displaced the previous atmosphere, and then all those present were filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, that means more than I think it just simply says on the surface. I think it's a formula. It's a formula that we should pray over and pray for to occur its dimensions every time we're together as a fellowship of believers. Um, I just can't tell you what a pleasure it is to be with Jason, his family, in their home. It's... I, I, I told my wife when I left, I know what to expect in going because I know who I'm going to be with. I appreciate that so deeply. I, it's when we meet, now please don't overread this analogy. It's like Elizabeth and Mary meeting and the baby developing in the body of one of them leaped to meet, to honor the baby developing in the body of the other one. This is exactly what should happen when growing Christians meet. The developing life of Christ rises to greet the developing life of Christ in the other person. So when you're with a spirit-filled Christian and you are spirit-filled, both 
rather erratic stages because fullness is fullness, but it's fullness of capacity. And capacity may be small, may be large, may be intermediate. And actually, your fullness may be partial sometimes. Don't have everything you want, but you have far more than you started with. And when they meet, when you meet a spirit-filled Christian, you're with them five minutes and you feel like you've known them a hundred years. You meet some Christians, you might be with them a hundred years and you don't feel like you've really known them for five five minutes. The secret is the dominance of the spirit inside the person. I was, um, if I can find the place, listen to this. I've got this message right here beside the one I'm going to bring today on the natural, spiritual, and carnal man. Here's the outline under the spiritual man. Natural man is exhibit A. He's in Adam. He just does what comes naturally as a child of Adam. Spiritual man is exhibit C because he's in Christ and exercising all his spiritual privileges of that position and being in the person, the person in him, Christ. So the spiritual man lives by the Spirit, learns from the Spirit, is liberated through the Spirit. Listen, here's the telltale evidence. He leaves the Spirit's fingerprints and influence behind him when he departs the scene. So, I want to see something become such impact, such insight, that it determines hindsight. Now, you have your Bible, should have your Bible. So I think I announced it. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But I want to cycle just a minute the entire surrounding of the passage, the context, a, a, a text without a context is a pretext. And I want to cycle the context so we can see the cradle where this baby was rocked to birth. It, in the closing part of chapter 2, you have an incredible, the beginning of an incredible expose of the work of the Spirit in things divine. For example, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, you see the place of the Spirit in divine revelation, God's unveiling of Himself, and particularly in written unveiling, written revelation, the Bible. God unveiling Himself in print, God in black and white. And if it ever leaps off the page and storms your soul, you'll know what that means. If it does leap off the page and reach you, the second stage is reached. Revelation then becomes illumination. See, revelation is God unveiling Himself. Illumination is God turning on the lights to that unveiling inside of you. And this is in chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Illumination. Spirit searches all things, deep things of God. Who among man, who among men knows the thoughts of a man 
except the man's spirit within him. In other words, nobody knows me among human beings better than I know me because I live inside of me and I, I read myself inside out. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So that leads to suggestively to the fact if we're going to get to know God, period, we've got to be close company companion with the Holy Spirit and adapt Him to close company command in our spirits. All right, that's number two. Then comes the inevitable result. Now you can test a believer and a fellowship of believers by this succession. If revelation is dominantly intact there, and illumination is constantly turning on the lights and has generated further hunger for more light, See, if a person lives up to the light he has, God will give him more light. If he doesn't live up to the light he has, he'll slip back into darkness and darkness will enhance itself. It'll become more darkness. So everything depends on our our adjustment to, our adaptation to the light of revelation and it becomes illumination. Then here's a secret. It has to become communication. I believe, therefore I speak. I see, therefore I say. If it is illumination, it becomes communication. Listen to it. This is then what we speak. This is the very next passage after the illumination verses. So here's communication. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual ideas with spiritual words. That's a pretty technical vocation to try to live under the dispatch of that constant communicating capacity. Now, then he's going to talk about the reception of spiritual things. And he introduces us into four categories of people, each of which shows a level of reception or no reception. There's a kind of person who has no reception at all for spiritual things. He's dead. Dead toward God. Psychophysically alive. Alive psychologically in his mind, emotions, and will and in his body, but stone dead toward God. And here's God's problem. How do you convince a dead man he's dead? You know the reason most lost people are lost? They're never around a spirit-filled Christian. So God has no vehicle of entrance. Let me say it again. The reason most lost people are lost... See, pagans out in the dark pagan areas of the world almost have no intrusion at all of spiritual people. And yet look at us. We're all assembled in this place, amalgamating more of it. Listen, you, not this church, not this fellowship, you, ma'am, you, sir, you, young fellow, you, young lady, are responsible for the whole wide world. Not your church, 
See, don't put this in a ca- artificial category of missions. There's no such thing as a person who's not to be on mission who's born again. So missions is a totally artificial capacity. Furthermore, if you will build people like God commanded you, Jesus commanded you to build people, then you will impact the whole wide world. I can prove it to you. Just come with me. I've got a guy standing on the other side of the world right now. His head's pointed down the other direction, feet pointed up in this direction, standing on solid soil, who is my disciple. I mean my disciple. I am responsible for him as my disciple, and I am allowed to call him my disciple. Jesus called them John's disciples. So where are your Don't underplay or overplay what I'm saying. You can't make disciples like this. If I had to depend on this, I would have an absolutely hopeless ministry. No, Jesus hand-sculpted 11 surviving men. And He did it by dividing them into groups. I mean, just list the four lists of the apostles. See who always comes first at the top of every list. One who always comes fifth in every list. And all the lists, as you read them across. And the one who comes ninth in every list, all the way across. And all the rest are erratic. Except, first group, headed by Simon Peter, Mr. Dynamite, is made up of dynamic men. Second group, headed by Philip, Mr. Philosophical, is filled with philosophical men like Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Intensely philosophical believer. The last group is made up of political revolutionaries. In other words, do you have a strategy for world impact by disciple making? Why not? The one thing that is missing from most church members' lives, and I mean intensely serious, devoted church members, is the one thing that Jesus gave us as His last command. They don't have any strategy. You cannot be a Christ-following strategist, Christ-following disciple without having a strategy to fulfill the Great Commission. That's what that is. It's a strategy statement. Uh, Let me show you how it bleeds. Here's Paul's version of the Great Commission. This is the recorded echo. Uh, You're familiar with this. I'm I'm very tempted to camp here because it's awfully big. I'm, I'm intending to do something else. I'm just on my way. Now, look at 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. And remember this my son thing from Paul to Timothy is disciple-making relationship. He's not his blood son. He's his under-the-blood son. Now that gives you a pretty good definition of disciple-making. It is spiritual parenting to the point of multiplying reproduction. Or reproductive multiplying. In other words, at my age and my history, I'm somewhere up the arm. Just draw a spot on my arm. That's Herb. 
here's um, Sam, Sam Dixon. Here's J.B. Selectman. These are primary Timothys, and, I, and my goodness, it would take 30 hands to even start stretching these guys out. Now, what I build in Sam is going to determine watch whether this happens or not. See, if it stops here, I failed. You say, no, he failed. No, 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 I failed. Because what I put into him, if I do not build a concept of multi-generational multiplication and model it in front of him, he will only go as far as I go. And he'll not do what I say as much as he'll do what he sees me doing. Then he will begin to look like this. And boy, does he. Sam Dixon has got an absolute mob of disciples. This wouldn't even honor the concept in, in his network. And every one of those disciples are being built like this. This is one man. Selectman's got the same thing. I mean, they would crowd up against each other. In the Memphis area alone where we live, there are thousands of these guys all forming parts of networks of primary Timothys. Each one of them has then has a primary Timothy, and that word network is... Now this, this is New Testament Christianity, so don't parade anything else to me and call it that. Don't take any self-satisfaction in a reduced ministry. You're under command by the commissioner himself. To turn people into, and the very word, mathetes, disciple. Mathetusite, make disciples. Root form for the word mathematics. It entails and is impacted with and by and impacts through a mathematical standard and strategy. And if that mathematical strategy, how does it bleed into the book of Acts? Starts with addition. Doesn't stay there but just a short time. Only remains there long enough to accelerate to multiplication. Then it never goes back to addition. And by Acts 9, it's the churches that are multiplying. Where is that kind of Christianity? The church I was pastor of, Memphis, in Memphis, Tennessee alone, established 14 new churches, some of which outgrew the mother body. And we dispatched our best leaders. Listen, you can't outgive God. You send your best equipped leaders out to lead those churches, and He will more than reproduce them at the home base again. But if you disagree with him, you'll sit, soak, sulk, and sour. You'll, you'll, you'll get real bloated fat on what's happening here, and then it'll spoil. See, he knows what he's doing. And he knows if we're not doing. But, uh, where was I? Second Timothy somewhere. It's in here somewhere. I read it the other day. Uh, but but listen listen to what Paul said in Second Timothy two, and I may stop here, may not. I'm I'm railroaded. <laughs> Look at verse one. The word "you" in verse one, first word in the Greek text in verse one is "you." It's major emphasis in the Greek text. So here is this veteran, statesman, Christian missionary 
Paul the Apostle, throwing the spotlight of this recorded letter on the recipient of the letter as the one who is to become dominant in this process. You! You! This is like finger in face, and this is what God does to every one of His children. Don't shun this down, shunt this down a sidetrack and act like this is your church's responsibility. No, you can't escape. If you're apprehended by grace, that means to be arrested. Arrested for what purpose? The arm of love, the hand of love closes on you to enlist you into this army. You're responsible to impact the whole wide world by building one disciple that becomes a network, and while you're building one, you may be building five, and even many more, and each one becomes a network for worldwide impact, so you're becoming intrusive into the whole wide world all the time if you abide by this, but if you just go to school and go to study and and read your Bible and pray and things like that without strategy, without this. No, this is not guesswork. This is not my strategy. It's only mine by borrow, by loan. I'm under mandate. You then, my son, be strong. That's a passive voice verb. Be made strong. There is no such thing as a truly productive, self-made Christian. He is constructed by someone beyond him who comes in to do an inner number in him and developing himself in him, he releases himself and his standard through him. And here's what you're to be made grow, be made strong in. Be made strong in the grace. Right, let's just make that real simple. Grace is God doing things for you. How were you saved? You were saved by God doing it for you. How do you serve? You're saved, you're served by God doing it for you, in you, then through you. So you're the agent of God's action by grace all the way through. And he says, the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Boy, I wish I had time there. Why did Paul call him Christ Jesus? None of the other apostles called him Christ Jesus. Paul almost never calls him Jesus Christ. Almost never. It's always Christ Jesus. See, there's an order of experience here. They met him first as Jesus and then said, You are the Christ. He met him first in his glory as the Christ and said, This Jesus I was hating is the same as the Christ I was loving. I realize now they're the one and the same person. And Paul died to that old way of life and was replaced by a new man. In verse 2, he gives the stated formula. This is the Great Commission in action. And, now notice the word and, connecting conjunction, means that this formula is suspended on the resource of verse 1. Nobody will ever fulfill verse 2 unless he gets daily big doses of the grace of God. See, grace 
give me the acronym. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Then God's resource, resources at Christ's entrance. And on and on you can go. You can readjust it to see the, all the stages by which grace is to become dominant and operate in and through you. He says, and the things, and he's already identified those things in verse 13 of chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, the exact pattern copy of sound doctrine. The things you have heard from me. Let's not hurry. Are you sure you caught that expression? The things you have heard from me. Guess what the word from is there? It's not the normally expected word in Greek. That would be ek, out of me. Well, this is para. Any Greek students here, tell me what that word means. Are there any Greek students here? <laughs> okay, tell me what para means. Now, you shouldn't have to consult it. If you're a Greek student, you should know. It's easy. It bleeds into our language constantly. Parallel. What does that mean? Alongside. Two things running adjacent to each other for some distance, equidistant for some distance, are parallel. Or parable, a story put alongside a truth so that you can look through the story like a window and understand and read, perceive the truth. So here's the first secret of making disciples. The things that you heard alongside me. Now here's my biggest handicap this week. I try never to do anything alone. One of the most gratifying days of my life, I was walking down the hallway in Baptist Hospital in Memphis to visit somebody who was seriously ill. and I had uh, an insurance auditor beside me named Jerry Moore. And he and I, I mean, I spent hundreds of hours with him. Hundreds of hours. One in one. And, and this veteran pastor was coming down the hall Lowell Adams, white-haired man, Graceland Baptist Church in Memphis. He walked up to me straight forward. He punched me right in the middle of the chest and said, Brother Herb, let me ask you a question. I said, yes, sir. He said, where do you get all these men I see you with in hospital halls? I said, explain your question. He said, I've seen you with this man numerous times, but I've also seen you with another and another and another and another. Every time I see you in the hospital, you have a man beside you. Don't ever, if possible, do anything alone. Disciple being is a contagion. It's osmosis transfer. Just here's the secret. You wear your disciple, if possible, as a flank of your body. Where you go, he goes. When there are no idle moments, you're always talking shop, business. What does this mean? What do we do in this case? Explain this part of the Bible to me. And it's back and forth. 
at first it's usually one-way communication. Very quickly you realize you're not just discipling him, he's discipling you. And now you can gang up on everything around you. I wish you could see Jerry Moore now. He's a pastor down in... He was an insurance auditor. When he was 55 years old, he said God called him to preach. I said, that's too old. He said, no, I'm not as old as Moses was. And God called him. I said, I yield. You win. I wish you could see him now. I mean, a hand like that wouldn't even start the picture. You'd have to have ten hands like this going all directions. I don't mind telling you, I've got people like this all over the world. I'm boasting, you bet I am. I'm responsible to, Paul said to the Thessalonians, who is my boast? Are not major emphasis? You! I boast in him and them. That's what Paul said. And he said it several times. Who is my joy? Who is my crown? When I get to face Jesus, my crown will be determined by how many line up behind me as my built disciples. In other words, this is a gang-up formula. He intends to get this done. But we're the ones who don't listen. We just go to church, blanket an audience with a new grace truth this Sunday, and then come back for another one next Sunday, and then come back for another one next Sunday, and the strategy totally goes begging when every one of those grace truths, and boy, believe me, I didn't, I couldn't see your pastor in the pulpit 20 seconds without knowing what kind of pastor you got. Now, if you could use everything he says, master what he said, I want a copy of that. You had it in print. You had it the notes in front of you. I want a copy of it. Can you? Can I ask you in public so you can't refuse? <laughs> then I'll improve it and teach it. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. No, I'd just be happy to begin to match that. It was incredible. Now, i got a question for you all. He's not listening. Does he preach like that all the time? I, do you have any idea how blessed you are? But you are stewards of this. When it passes heart to mind, you become a trusty house manager of the truth of God you just received. And its intent is it transits through you, Paul said, in exact form, tupas. So you memorize it. You master it. (laughs) If you can't produce it yourself, then use his. I mean, you got a head start on all of this. It's really easy. But you can't go to church and sit there like stumps on a log and say, I was blessed. That's not it. If you were really blessed, you're blessed to be a blessing. And that's enlarging always. Boy, this is big, big strategy stuff. So he says, my son, be made strong in the catch-22 all resource commodity that is in Christ Jesus. And the things, this exact tupas, exact impress or form, exact pattern of sound doctrine you have heard from me, heard me say, running alongside of me in the presence of many witnesses, 
the same. That is, don't change anything. Just repeat it. That's enough. The same deposit, this is a banker's term. Anytime you deposit money in a savings account, you are expecting, what are you expecting in return? Somebody just call it out. When you put money in a savings account in the bank, what are you expecting in return? Tell me. Come on, everybody. Play my game. Okay, that's interesting. There's not a person in this room but put money in a savings account and be satisfied only to get the interest back. You want the capital plus the interest. Look, if he's my disciple, he's my capital. His disciples are my interest. I won't be satisfied to not be able to have both of those. And when I stand before God, I'm not so sure but that this will be a math test. How many? Because he's in the people business. His whole idea is how many sons, bringing many sons to glory. Well, his, his formula in us is how many are coming in through the hole you've made. See, in other words, boy, God is serious about this. He expects you to live and die for them like Jesus lived and died for you. So you're walking, living death, and dying life every day for the sake of, it's right here in this verse, we'll hold that. All right, listen. Entrust all these things to reliable men. In other words, do not disciple unfaithful men. You're carving rotten wood. It'll go to pieces in your hand. So what do you do? You test the person. You give him assignments. I remember the first time I had to put one on the shelf. One of my dearest friends. I mean, stead, and we're still incredibly steadfast in our friendship. He didn't probate me because of this action. He knew it was right. He was in a group of 12 men I was discipling on a Saturday morning for three hours. And invariably, the first few times he came in 15 or 20 minutes late, the seats were all taken at the door, so he had to stumble over everybody to get to an empty seat. I, I called him aside after the first one. I said, you did know we started at, and I gave the starting time. He said, yes. I said, can you manage that? He said, yes. I said, okay, I'm going to expect you to. Next Sunday, next Saturday, he came in 15 minutes late. I called him aside, and I said, now wait. What did we say, and what did you say? Okay, he said, I'll do it. Same thing the next time. I said. We need to make a settlement. You cannot come back to this class. Not until you show a facility for reliability, faithfulness, and trustworthiness. And you've got to prove that to me. I'll receive you back in in a second. Well, he didn't take me as an enemy at that point. He knew this was right. See, a disciple, his first premise is he denies himself. What Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him, let him treat himself like Peter treated Jesus when he said, I don't know the man. I have no claims here. They're all his. 
So I'm not embarrassed when a vocational intrusion comes in to challenge me because somebody's trying to help me catch up with the contract. So, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things to reliable men who will also be made competent. Now think of that. The process of disciple-making makes the disciple competent to teach others also. Listen. See, this engine runs on teaching. It is the dominant means of advance for the gospel. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, the very first item in the agenda. Teaching engineers all of it. Without teaching, you've hardly got any place to begin. Teaching is a catch-all word for the academic and spiritual presentation of the truth of God in a systematic and organized way. And that's rather rough, but it's a good beginning. Qualified to teach others. Now listen, in that first verse, the word of ultra-dominant attention, emphasis, heavily emphatic, is the word others also. That should be the formula of your life. No exemptions, no exceptions, no exclusions. (laughs) Nothing like getting tangled up by a chain. (laughs) All right, look. Notice, Notice what you got here. The importance of the first penny. Take him out. Where does it go? Never starts. Now, don't misread this. You don't have to be the personification of an Apostle Paul in order to do this. This man was hardly that. In fact, in disposition, he almost looks like precisely the opposite of that. But... You read him at the beginning, he's just timidity. You read him at the end, he's a world changer. Why? And when Jesus left here, this is his mandate. As you are going into all nations, turn people into disciples. Now, In the nature of the case, you can't be a disciple without making other disciples. That's entailed in the contract. So don't call yourself a disciple of Christ if you are not engendering this into other people and producing persons like yourself. See, so you've got to be willing to clone yourself. Don't worry about that. That'll scare you half to death to start with. You say, well, wait a minute, I don't want to reproduce myself. Look, ask God to build the self in you, of you, out of you, and through you that can clone itself like Jesus in image. And then just get about the business. Just rub up against somebody else, enlist them, take them with you. Be careful. I have never enlisted a disciple. 
Never. I have never asked anybody to be my disciple. Now, the applications are so many I can't even keep up with them. And the invitations to countries, I just came back from over, it's well into the 200s now, my overseas training trips, training pastors and leaders all over the world. And this year we will have 45 teams of men that I have trained at home, anywhere from 2 to 12 men. They take the teams, like one's in China now with a 12-man team, and they're going into six provinces, two per person, training Chinese pastors. In other words, China is there for the asking and the taking. It's our oyster, but we're going to have to do it the way Jesus said so. And when you put it in a Chinese person's hand, just get out of the way. Because they've already died. They've already suffered. There's nothing else to prove in those areas to them. They're dead people on furlough. I had one of them, I was teaching in Shangzi province, and, and there was a whole lineup here. They were filming it. We had been run out of a compound by the Chinese government. They chased us out. So we went back to town, moved into another hotel, got a suite in the back where it's closed off from the the entry room where they can come in, but they don't even know that others back there unless they they force their way in. And we're teaching, and there's a high eight camera, Chinese made, about eight feet away from me. My companion teacher's right here beside me. We reserve the right to interrupt each other at any time, and add to it or correct or whatever. And then the Mandarin tra- translator is here, and and we taught from eight o'clock in the morning till eleven o'clock at night. Well, the sun sandwich break for lunch. Just a few moments brought in. And then we're back to teaching again. And all these guys I take with me can teach everything I teach, and most of them can teach it better than I teach it. They're laymen. There's no ordained person among them. It's a people's movement. And when we finished on Saturday noon, we had to catch a plane that afternoon back home. That's five and a half days of steady 8 to 11 teaching. The coordinator on the opposite side of the cameraman got up from the camera when he turned it off, walked up to me, cocked his head and said, I guess you know this film can be copied a million times. I said, that's an exaggeration. He said, you think so? Just watch. He said, by this time next week, your face will be on screens in front of coordinators and their pastors under them all over China in every province of the country. I'm saying, here we are playing games at home, always going to church. What for? His business, his business as pastor-teacher is to equip the saints, that the saints do the work of ministering. There's the word equip. There's the root form. This is ending. This is the prefix preposition. That's the word we get a word artisan from. The business of your pastors is to turn every person in this constituency into an absolute skilled craftsman in the way he handles and deploys the Word of God, and then you dispatch the craftsman to the place where he's to spread the same strategy where he goes. 
So this is what this is all about. It's a big enough assignment to commandeer your attention from now to the day you die, and then you'll wish for more time. So let me ask you a question. There's only one command in 2 Timothy 2.2, just like there's only one command in the Great Commission of Matthew 28.18-20. Command in Jesus' statement is, make disciples, turn people into what I turned those 12 men into, the 11 survivors. You emulate my pattern with them. Go everywhere, wherever you can find reasonably available people. Turn them into disciples. World impactors, multipliers, generational multipliers, just like he did. Now, Paul echoes that in 2 Timothy 2.2. That standard he gives is just the practical expression of the Great Commission of Jesus. Here it is in nuts and bolts in Paul's life at his fingertips every day. And just like the command of Jesus has only one, one, the commission of Jesus has only one command, this commission of Paul only has one command. It's the word commit, or entrust, or deposit. This is every disciple's responsibility. It agrees with Jesus. Invest is the word. So let me ask you a question. Now, not tomorrow, now, look back on your life and ask yourself, is my life more of an investment or more of an expenditure? Most of what we do in Christian activity is a dead-end expenditure. Reading the Bible for most Christians is an expenditure. It's final the moment it occurs. Praying for most Christians, with some exceptions of intercession, are expenditures. They're final the moment they occur. Most of our activities can fall into that category easily. If we have no formula, no strategy, no follow-up, no intent, no agreement with Jesus, so is your life right now more of an expenditure or an investment? Is it more like a house of mirrors in which you see yourself? How am I doing? Am I reading the Bible enough? Am I praying enough? I've got to get back to church. I've got to be more faithful. I've got to witness more for Jesus. That's a house of mirrors. Or are you living in a house of windows where you don't even think about yourself? You're focusing on the next guy and always entailing the question, how's he doing? How can I advance him? See, my ministry is not my ministry. It's the advance of the other man's ministry. So is my life more like a purse in which I gather resources and hoard them and then open it up to gain them out for myself? Or is it like a pipeline of transit on its way to somebody else? Is my life basically terminal at the act of reception or is it germinal so it only picks up speed in transit through me? Um, I'll, I'll stop. I want to give you an illustration and I'll stop. I'll give you a, a, a stated illustration, then a 
picture illustration. Here's the stated illustration. So a Christian is like a collapsible drinking cup. A collapsible drinking cup is just a number of rims about that high. You start unfolding it, it becomes a big cup, and it'll hold the content, the liquid content you put in it. A Christian is like a collapsible drinking cup. The more he opens up to others, the greater will be his own capacity for the things of Christ. Wow. So the way to grow is not to focus on your growth. It's to get it involved in the enablement of other people. The growth will be automatic. Here's the illustration. You remember in Mark chapter 12, uh, Jesus told, or, or rather Jesus was standing at the temple treasury one day when a poor widow with just a couple of minute, almost worthless coins came by the temple treasury box and dropped those in. Jesus is watching carefully. See, it says he saw all the rich people coming, giving out of their riches. And he said, what she gave is more than what any of them gave because she gave all that she had. Well, two mites, just a minuscule sum. Seven research psychologists here in the United States put that under the microscope of test and, and age history. Here's what they finally said. If you could have taken those two mites that day at market value, deposited them in a local bank, to accrue at 4% per annum in the investment and savings to get that return, the capital and the interest, roll it over without ever touching the product, keep on rolling it over, over and over. Every time it accrues, you just roll it over again so you have an additional investment, gaining additional interest. He said, by this date today, and this was about 20 years ago when they said that, so it would be off the map today. This is off the map. He said, if you were to go to that account in the bank today, accruing at that interest could find it there in that one given place, it would today be worth approximately 4.8 billion trillion U.S. dollars. Got any idea what God expects of you? This church game is not getting it. And it won't get it the way we're doing it. This is not to be the place of the movement. This is the base for the movement. And the primary action is to take place outside, not inside. This is the equipping station to turn every person here into a skilled craftsman in how this is done on the outside for the maximum explosive multiplication individually. One and one, he multiplies in him, then they multiply two more, four more, eight more, exponentially. Just like seeds. One seed has the capacity for all the product that has ever been produced of that kind of crop 
in the history of the world, one seed. And Jesus said, the good seeds are the children of the kingdom. That's you. So how do you get yourself planted? How do you let this life germ spring into its intended productivity? How do you stay out of the way so that other seeds are engendered in the first pot of fruit? And then each one of them becomes a catalytic point. That's what this is all about. So God help us. When it's all over, there are two words. The Greek word add is prostithemy. The Greek word multiply is plethuno. Which one of those will characterize you? Did you even add? When he tells you to multiply, a species that does not multiply will die. I'll stop there. Do I get any extra for overtime? Okay, you come. I want to ask everybody what I asked everybody Friday night. And you guys that have already heard this, good. You might feel guilty right now. And you shouldn't. You shouldn't. This is not about guilt. Guilt pushes you away from this. Helplessness, hopelessness, maybe, but not guilt. It's real easy to hear something like that and say, well, I'm not him, he's not me, and I'll never measure up to him, and God must be mad at me. Good news, God's not mad at you. But God has entrusted His immeasurable resources to you. The very life of Christ given to you to be given out through you. Maybe this does not characterize your life right now. Today, it's possible. Because of the unlimited resources of grace. Today, today, you can make a decision that you will, by the grace of God, change the world. You will be a multiplier. You can make that decision today. You say, well, I can't make it happen. No, but He can. He can. You kids, you high school students, you college students, wow. Dave Ramsey talks about if you start investing today, by the time you retire, you'll be a multimillionaire because of what's called compound interest. Start today. Today. Don't give me excuses why you can't start today. Don't tell me about your life circumstance as to why it won't work in my situation. Timothy tried that, and he became a multiplier. Today, today is the day that you can say, yes, by the grace of God, I will be a multiplier. Today, let's pray. God, we do definitely, absolutely, positively need Your grace. And that's good news. The better news is that it is available to us. Your grace finds us, equips us, and empowers us to do what we cannot do. That's the salvation story.
And I pray that it would be our story today.